Hi, my name is Saul and this is the story of London, an ongoing podcast dedicated to the tale of the City of London as it travelled through history. In our last episode we were deep into the tale of a forgotten and overlooked moment from the era of the Viking Wars. The Kingdom of Alfred of Wessex, Alfred the Great, had been attacked by a massive alliance of Vikings from the Scandinavian diaspora on the continent. From mostly France, nearly 300 ships had invaded Kent. But after months of attritional warfare, the Vikings had suffered some major defeats. Survivors of this raiding force had taken refuge on Thorny Island, which we today call Westminster. The inhabitants of London had helped besiege them on the island, and despite their small numbers, had managed to convince the Vikings to march away back to East Anglia. Then, the residents of London had marched a day's solid march to the other way, and had fallen upon the Viking base of a feared war leader called Haston, capturing his ships, taking his loot, and above all, capturing the families of the Viking raiding force, and then burning and killing everyone who resisted. But Haston and his men were not there when this happened, and he had simply rebuilt a new base of operations in Shubury. Here, Joined now by the Vikings who had been on Thorny Island, and with more recruits arriving from East Anglia and Northumbria, who were Viking-rung nations who were now joining in the fighting against Wessex, Haston built up a large fleet. London waited nervously for the revenge upon them from this feared warlord, a man who had humbled everyone, from Byzantines to Caliphate Muslims, from Basques to the residents of Pisa. They brace themselves for the onslaught to come, and this is where we start. Welcome to chapter 16 of the story of London, London's Dark Twin. Here is 894, the dying embers of the 9th century. London, London Burr in the native tongue, the London Fortress, was trying to carry on life as best they could. For months they had waited, upriver, beyond the bend down in Wapping, that twist in the great waterway that was their lifeline. Way beyond where the river widened and met the sea was a marsh-filled place called Shubury. There they knew Haston the Viking warlord was gathering a fleet. As the men and women of the town went about their business, bartering, buying and selling, crafting and talking, perhaps noticing that amidst their slaves, their fair-haired families of those self-same Vikings, as they gazed at the small fishing boats catching fish from the river, at the men gathering eels from the marshlands opposite the town, they knew, not guessed, but knew, that it was only a matter of time before Haston unleashed his forces. One can only imagine their preoccupation. Occasionally, news would arrive of the great war far to the west, where the king was trying to deal with Vikings in both north and the south of Devon. But for weeks, months even, there was no news from downriver. And then, without warning, word arrived. After months of waiting, of scout reports of no news, Word came that the new fleet had taken to the river and it was sailing straight towards London. 
Hurriedly, we can imagine the Londoners dropping everything. This was it. This is what they had feared and prepared for. The gates were checked and double-checked. The provisions stored in the event of a potential siege were made safe. Men would don what armour they could, grab a spear and take to the walls before those docks. Would women and children stay in their homes or make to public spaces, maybe the churches that had begun to dot up here and there, maybe all the way to St Paul's? We do not know. All we can say for sure is that based on the accounts we do have, the menfolk of London reacted as if the Battle of London was here. We can imagine now the sight of that Viking fleet as it rounded the bend in the river at Wapping and came into sight of the walls of London, bristling with men, while across on the south bank the Burr and Southwark was also similarly provisioned. Driven by tide and wind, we can imagine their expectation as steadily this vast fleet made their way towards the town, and we can imagine their surprise as the ships just carried on. Those ships were close, close enough to shout insults to, close enough to hear insults being shouted back. But there was no bridge over the river. The old Roman one had long gone, and while its foundations were still there, under the river, waiting to be exploited, there was nothing to stop these ships. From behind the walls of the city, the jeering Londoners watched as Haston and his fleet just glided past them. Were they going to land to the west of the city? They did not. They sailed on. Were they going to land on Thorny Island? They did not. They just sailed on. London watched helpless as these Vikings just bypassed the town and sailed into the heartland of Mercia. What they had not figured out was that the Viking leader, Hirston and his men, they were not here for their wives and children. They were here for plunder and riches. And they were going to use the river to take them deep into the heartland of Wessex, and there was not a damn thing anyone could do to stop them. The story itself of this war carries on elsewhere. It would take days, if not weeks, for London to have heard about the events which followed. How this force had taken the Thames past other fortified burrs, like Oxford, up and down the river, ignoring them all, sailing on until they could join the River Severn, and from that, travel deep into the English countryside, far to the north and the west, while the king and his army were trapped, besieging Vikings in the south and the west. Eventually, the residents of London would have heard what happened then, how the various Eildermen of Wessex, including their own Ethelred of Mercia, had led the English forces in another savage campaign of attrition, bottling the Vikings up and besieging them in a place called Buttington. Here, trapped, without food and facing starvation, so much so they had to eat most of their horses, the Vikings had broken out with serious losses and after occupying and then being driven out again of the old abandoned Roman ruins of Chester, were forced to end up just raiding Wales for whatever treasures they could find there, before returning back to East Anglia the long way round, on foot, broken but not defeated. This news 
combined with the news that King Alfred had finally managed to drive the Vikings out of Devon, meant that despite all the odds, Wessex had triumphed. Towards the end of 894 then, Alfred returned to London in glory and adulation and to pass judgment on Hastings' wife and children. His nation had just seemingly won against four Viking armies, and London, frontline town that it was, had not only witnessed part of this titanic struggle, they had been part of it. The town was honoured by the arrival of the king, and perhaps not too surprised when Alfred ordered Hastings' family be returned to him. Alfred was always a good Christian. Yet as that ship came to take them to the lands of East Anglia, no one knows if Hastings was alive or dead at this point, however. He is never mentioned in the record again, and he may well have died in the muddy fields of Buttington or on a cold campaign in Wales. All seemed triumphant, and the king returned to his estates. But quickly, more news arrived that the Vikings were not quite done. This war was not quite over. Maybe Haston was still alive, or maybe some new cunning commander from East Anglia had taken control of the Viking forces because suddenly the Vikings second-guessed Alfred and London. A new Viking base camp had been built. Now, this was technically within their borders, settled by the Treaty of Wedmore, but it was also clearly a direct follow-up from all the fighting that has been going on. As we said in previous chapters, the Treaty of Wedmore had established a line of demarcation between Alfred's territory and the territory of East Anglia along the River Lee, but it was not a set thing as we imagine borders today. This new Viking force had sailed from Mercy up the River Thames to Bow Creek, and then taking that, it sailed up the River Lee and had now established a new camp in Hartford, a mere 23 miles from London. This wasn't just a Viking raiding camp, however. Families had been brought, along with slaves and whole households. This was an attempt at a settlement, an attempt to create the equal and opposite of London, a town designed to man the border. This new settlement threatened the entire Thames Valley. It threatened London. Hartford dominated the region near it and could control farmland London needed to sustain itself. The region wasn't big enough for London and this new Viking settlement. If something wasn't done, and done quickly, if this community could establish roots, it could, it would, in order to feed itself, take farmland that London required. Without the crops needed to feed it, London could not be able to expand. If they were lucky, if they were unlucky, it would not be able to feed itself. To the Londoners and its overlord Aethelred, this new settlement on the River Lee was a direct and existential threat to the town. It was as if the Vikings had realised that the best way to nullify London and its mighty walls was to create a dark twin of it somewhere to consume resources and weaken it, perhaps fatefully. London needed to deal with this and needed to deal with this fast. Over the winter and spring of 894 and 895, 
the Mercian forces gathered in London. Men came from all over. The city prepared for a new stage of the war. Their experiences with the camp at Benfleet had hardened the attitudes of many. They had attacked a Viking camp on their doorstep before, and they would do so again. Finally, in 895, as the warm summer months began, they felt they had enough forces, and so they marched. The residents of London and others, Mercians and Wessexians, united under a Mercian leader who swore fealty to a Wessex king. Last time they had marched out with Aethelred commanding them, it had been a resounding victory. So we can assume, without too much speculation and based on what we know is about to happen, that they were in high spirits as they left, filled with vigour and righteous anger and an eager desire to bring battle to those heathens. They covered the distance in just a single day. This base was even closer to London than the last one in Benfleet. It would not take them long to reach it. But as we said, this was not just a Viking camp, this was an attempt at a settlement. During the winter, as London had built up its forces, the Vikings had also been busy. They knew their neighbours would come visit. They had prepared for it. This was a very well-defended compound. The Vikings had built ditches and defensive works in depth. It was a magnitude more well protected than that simple camp back at Benfleet. The army of London had no experience fighting this kind of base. They did not recognise how dangerous a straight assault would be. Passionately and furiously, they threw themselves at the Viking defences and were systematically and coldly cut to shreds. One source says the Vikings lost less than five men that day as the army of London marched into a death trap. Their force was utterly decimated, at the very least. London had gone out to deal with its rival new settlement and had been roundly defeated. What had been a bad situation was now many times worse. This was now a full-blown crisis. All the passion and fury in the world could not match the cold ferocity of their new Viking neighbours. The dark twin of London seemed to have the upper hand. And for the residents of London, who would have seen this army just leave in such high spirits, they would have witnessed their return, bloodied, injured and broken. Luckily for all, salvation quickly arrived in the form of their king, Alfred. Now in his late forties, he was a veteran of so many wars, but peace still eluded him. He understood that the situation was dire, and clearly he had plans for London, so the king arrived with his forces, and London was saved from immediate crisis. Indeed, Alfred seemingly saw the situation much more clearly, and came up with a cold and calculated plan to deal with this new community, this potential dark twin of London. Well, the history books say Alfred came up with the plan. The truth is, somebody else could have come up with the plan, but Alfred's king, so he takes all the glory. As London buried its dead and tended to its wounded, Alfred marched out his army towards the settlement at Hartford. But they did not attack it. As the late summer sun beat down upon them all, the Vikings gazed out from behind their ferocious defences and watched as the Saxon Fjord placed themselves between the new settlement 
and the nearby agricultural lands London had worried the Vikings would take. The Fjord was a standing army, but many of these soldiers were farmers when they were not serving the king. Alfred had them harvest the crops in full view of the Vikings. This food was not going to go to them. But the king had another part to his plan. He had located a place on the River Lee, downstream from the new settlement, where the river was narrow and the ground solid on either side. And now he put to work the builders and men of London. He ordered they build two reinforced burrs on the river with a low hanging bridge in between them. This would stop any ships trying to get supplies to the settlement from reaching them without a fight and also prevent the settlement in Hartford from breaking out. And to prevent such a thing happening while the fortification was still being built, he ordered the men of London to man the Viking ships that they had confiscated a couple of years previously from Benfleet, blockading the river near the construction site. With no way of gathering a harvest, and no way any relief force could get to them or them to get out to get food, the Vikings in Hartford realized they had not constructed a new settlement. They had constructed their own tomb. It was only a matter of time before the winter turned and food rations would begin to run out and then eventually starvation would impact upon the women and children. They were trapped and as such were forced into desperate measures. The Viking plan was simple. Their warriors would suddenly surge north, going hell-to-leather into the northwest, which would force Alfred's army, or the mainstay of it, to give chase. They would also leave behind their ships, which would present any forces left behind to seek to gather them as trophies. And they did this so they could order the women and children and non-combatants to flee east aiming overland to the nearby safety of East Anglia. It was clear they hoped to sacrifice their ships, and maybe themselves, so their families could get away. The gambit, for its part, worked. Alfred saw no profit in the families anyway. As his army swung north to try and catch up with the fleeing Vikings, he gave word to the forces of London to deal with the abandoned settlement. The Londoners seized more ships and whatever could be salvaged from the abhorred Viking community, destroying this dark twin and once again returning to London in triumph by river. This savage war was to carry on over the next few years. Alfred sent his armies out to chase down Viking forces and in response to the constant raiding of English shores by Viking raiders, both attached to the disporing communities of East Anglia and Northumbria, but also to raiders from elsewhere. During this conflict, he ordered the commission of large deep draft ships, which is traditionally seen as the birth of what would become known as the Royal Navy. Keep in mind, however, when Alfred is ordering his new fleet to be constructed to take battle to the Vikings on the waves themselves, London is sat there with a new small fleet of captured Viking ships. It was already ahead of the game. The Anglo-Saxon design ships were larger than the Viking ones. They were heavily manned and their primary tactic was to allow boarding actions upon Viking ships at sea. 
London's little fleet appeared to have been smaller but more nimble dragon ships. Still, it is worth remembering that this state is not just the origin of the Royal Navy, but of there being a fleet in London. And why do I mention this now? Well, it's worth considering one crucial factor in everything we've said about the Vikings, a lesson that many fail to grasp. Simply put, he or she who controls the sea controls the world. It is easy to follow accounts of armies moving hither and thither over the landscape, to fall victim to the myth that those with the largest armies will always win a war. What the Vikings show us is that smaller forces who can maneuver quickly using the sea as their primary methodology of travel can always and will always have the strategic advantage over land-focused forces. Alfred began during this war to recognize this, but it would be his successors who truly understood that the secret to defending England was never a powerful army, but a powerful navy. In time, the most important aspect of the Anglo-Saxon armed forces was not the fjord, it was its sea-based equivalent, the ship fjord, the men who would man the fleets of England and the fleets of London. But I mention this now only to plant a seed within your mind. It will be many years before we reach the moment where this happens. This part is now only here to warn you of its oncoming role and of the role of the fleets of London were to find themselves in the years to come. For now, let us end this tale of the war between Wessex and the Viking diaspora. From the point of view of our story, London would not face any direct involvement in the dying embers of this conflict. And by the end of 896, it was over, and Wessex stood triumphant. It is a measure of the ferocity of this new English peoples that the war didn't just end with a victory. It ended in a way few could ever have imagined. Four years previously, when it started, over 250 Viking ships, perhaps over 300, had invaded Wessex a force larger than the great heathen army. But according to records, when it was all done and the Vikings returned back to Europe, they numbered only five ships. This invasion had been annihilated. The War of 892 to 896 saw the Kingdom of Wessex utterly obliterate the Diasporan Vikings and London had got to show its fangs. In the four years of this war, it had manned its walls to protect itself from a potential raid once, but had marched out four times. The siege of the encampment on Thorny Island, the sudden lightning attack on the camp in Benfleet, the first failed assault on Hartford, and then the successful blockade of that settlement, where London had sallied forth by ship to gather up more craft for their growing captured navy. 897 saw peace come to the land, finally. The breathless, heady experience of the previous four years of war had given everyone a lot of food for thought. Alfred no longer had a war to wage and sought to address certain issues about London that the war had made apparent. The first of these 
was the bridge. The old Roman bridge across the river showed that the Thames could be bridged here. But Hastings' assault up the Thames, getting as far as the River Severn, had shown his entire campaign could have been stopped, and could have been stopped dead, if the bridge had been rebuilt, linking London to the Burr and Southwark. This needed to be addressed. But more than that, the war may have annihilated the Vikings for a while, but it had also hurt Wessex deeply. Many had died. More had been displaced. The kingdom needed some long-term rebuilding and planning. King Alfred wanted to increase the trade revenue of his nation, and crucial to all of this would be the Port of London. In the time of his grandfather and of his grandfather's nemesis, Offer of Mercia, London had been the nexus point of a European-wide trade network. It had been a successful emporium. It could be so again. Alfred, however, needed London to be rebuilt somewhat faster than it was being done. He needed investment into the town. And this is why we think in 898 or 899, Alfred held a meeting in the nearby hamlet of Chelsea. Its purpose was to discuss the, quote, restoration of the city of London, unquote. Attending the meeting was the king. Alongside him was Ealdeman Ethelred, the Lord of London. And then alongside him was his wife and Alfred's eldest child, Lady Athelfleda. And then with them was the Bishop of Worcester and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Here they discussed the ongoing development of the town, and the King of the Eldermen made the members of the clergy an offer. They would be given a large portion of the empty space behind those walls, offering potential revenue sources to the clerics, provided they, of course, invested in the project. The bishop's territory within London is described as being about a rough acre in size, and it is probable that the Bishop of Worcester liked the idea because he could use it to sell salt his lands in the Midlands was cultivating in a new market. In a region of the city that roughly matches where today we'll find Cordwainer Ward and Bread Street Wards of London, this was effectively a series of soaks city blocks, located to the north of the docks, known at the time as Aethelred's Hythe. Hythe is a word meaning landing place, and in the years to come, Aethelred's Hythe would become known as Queen Hythe. Some have said that the reason why Queen Hythe became such an important docking area of London was due to an accident of archaeology and history. See, the old Roman docks of Londinium, which had lined the waterway had by now rotted away, leaving only stumps of wood, the foundations of those docks, below the waterline. Those foundations, however, presented a hazard to ships, always threatening to tear out a hull if you were not careful. The region that was to become Aethelred's Hive was a region I mentioned a few chapters ago, where a riverfront market had begun before Alfred had ordered the town moved behind the walls. It appears that this was part of the river where there was an easy or easier landing. 
It also appears, based on that name alone, that Lord Aethelred had allocated the hythe to himself. It's good to be the son-in-law of the king. And now in charge of the access and, above all, customs duties to be paid at those docks, he used them to highlight the desirability of the new soaks just behind it to the bishops for their commercial exploitation. London was planning, clearly, to return to what once was, to return to being an emporium. And we see proof of this in the development of two areas of commerce. While neither is referred to by name at this period, we know from archaeological records that as now we see two streets given over to seep, C-E-A-P. Seep is the old English word roughly meaning bartering or place of bartering. Quickly as the town grew in these early years, one developed over to the east of it and then another more westerly one near to St. Paul's. These would become known, effectively, as the East Seep and West Seep. Eventually, about 170 years from now, the West Seep would be referred to in documents as West Cheap, and then several hundreds of years beyond that, it would gain the name of Cheapside, while East Seep became known as East Cheap. Either way, we know that they both existed here in the very earliest days of Alfred's development and were part of the original exploitation of the City of London. But then, suddenly, on October 26, 899, aged 50 or 51, King Alfred the Great died. His passing marks the end of an era. And I could say much about him and his legacy, but as we're just telling the story of London, let us then merely add his name to our short but growing list of kings and potentates whose actions forever changed the story of London. Alfred not only moved London to its current location, not only laid the seeds and the foundations for its return to being a trade emporium, but above all, he also gave it its fangs, the belief that London could stand up for itself and was willing to defy the world. This was to be a gift whose legacy we would see many times to come in the centuries ahead. History moves slowly and then suddenly goes through sudden bursts, it seems. In the year 800, London was Londonwick a Mercian market port famed for its wares. By 900, London was a fortress, slowly trying to regain the economic role it had once played. And by the year 1000, London would be the principal town in England and would be contending with the rule of a Danish king. The 11th century was beginning and London was about to find the whole world was about to change about them. But for now, with Alfred's passing, we end this chapter in the story of London. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed it and I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. It's hard and somewhat lonely producing these episodes and any feedback you can give me either via here or via Imja or however you do it 
is much appreciated. If you haven't, and you feel so inclined, if you could give some kind of good review, or upvote, or five-star rating, or something like that that can impress the algorithms that run the world of podcasts, I would be immensely grateful. If you're interested, there will be a rough script of this posted to the website Imager. There'll be a link in the description to this episode, and there you can follow it. And from there, you can also follow links to my Buy Me A Coffee webpage, where you can contribute to my lifelong addiction to caffeine. And any contribution does help keep the podcast running. And that's it from me. I'll see you next week for another episode of The Story of London. Thanks.